Welcome to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, where we talk about the latest in financial literacy education. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We provide no-cost programs and free online resources that help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. This episode is part of our podcast season focusing on the road ahead, financially and mentally, due to the impacts of COVID-19. Our guests will help us understand what the future may look like and provide some insights on what steps we can take moving forward. You can find our podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. If you have any questions, you can get in touch with us at financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. Today, we're joined by David Malamud, CPA, CA, and court-qualified forensic accounting and fraud investigation expert. David's been conducting and managing investigations for corporations, law firms, individuals, governments, law enforcement agencies, and other public sector organizations for almost 20 years. He's recently taken his expertise to paper with his book, Uncovering Fraud, True Stories About Fraud, Fraudsters, and How They Got Caught. David's here to talk about something that many of us have adjusted to over the past six months, working from home. We've heard a lot about the challenges that come with this from a number of perspectives, such as how to stay healthy from a mental health perspective, what the ergonomics might look like, how it affects our professional lives. But one area that we've not heard a lot about is the potential security risks now that 40% of us are working remotely. So welcome, David. Thanks for joining me virtually. Thank you for having me, Doretta. This is a great example of how we're actually doing something from home and maybe not necessarily thinking about all the kinds of security issues that might come up around remote working. 100%. How do I know you're you? How do you know I'm me? Which is now becoming a common problem. It is. So let's start from the top and think about some of the maybe more obvious things that are top of mind for employers. And we know this was a huge thing before COVID, where many employers were reluctant about having people work from home. And that's that basic question of how do I know that my employees are really working from home? How do I measure their performance? That's a great question. You know, it it starts off with employee monitoring. Before COVID started, Many companies were getting into it already. You know, two examples of employee monitoring companies are Variato and Time Doctor. What it does is there's software that goes onto each employee's computer and it records keystrokes, number of keystrokes per hour, the websites that people go to, the different files that they open, and it delivers the information back to the employer. It's very interesting that it does it because one of the things that gets exposed is you know, there's maybe the bottom 2% of employees who may not be doing enough, may not be meeting their expectations. And that really comes out from employee monitoring. But, you know, there's also a different side to it. And that really is that employee monitoring with us at home now, work really can become 24 hours a day. You find yourself in front of the computer, there's not much to do, and you're working and working and working. So employee monitoring also alerts the employer Potentially, you've got to tell your employee it's time to take a break. 
I would think that some of the employee monitoring issues, technologically monitoring them, is also kind of job dependent, that there would be a lot of jobs or things that people do that they might not actually be doing on their computers or on their work supplied devices. That's true. I mean, you know, when you think about professionals and you think about people in law firms and accounting firms, what they are doing really are similar to my setup at home. I've got a laptop in front of me. I've got one screen to my left, one screen to my right. And that really is my new office. You know, it's my dining room, uh, which has lovely, lovely space in it. But, you know, it's my responsibility to get my work done. And the people who are not at their laptop and usual uh, business is working for them from their computer from the office, I agree with you. That is harder to measure. And maybe one of the ways is just <clears throat> those are the kinds of positions that are still measuring on deliverables. You know, if you're responsible for delivering a certain amount of work, does your employer care how you do it? When we've taken home our office and now we're at home and our families are at home, it used to be for a lot that work was nine to five, six to seven, something like that. But the truth is, Doretta, you know, I like doing my work late at night when the house is quiet. So my work starts probably 10, 1030, where I get a lot done and I wake up very early in the morning to record my videos or to write an article or do my research. And I've time shifted to accommodate my family. You know, having people running around the house screaming and yelling during the day makes things difficult to focus. The employee who does that also has to consider Lifestyle has changed now. Working from home is different. And what it does do, and something that really we need to focus on, because you know employee monitoring usually gets a bad rap. But to me, what it does is it allows you to tether yourself to the office and provides you the freedom of working from home. You know, when we think about the transformation that just happened, we went from working collectively in an office where if I needed something, I'd walk down the hall and go into somebody's office and ask them a question. I could go to HR. I could go to the CFO. I could go to the controller. And now today, I can't do that necessarily. I have to set up a Zoom call or set up a Skype call, and things are more formal. The things that we don't know yet is because things have changed in the way we operate, controls need to adapt as well. And when I start talking about controls, you know my focus is fraud controls. I want to really kind of focus in on first probably what the employer needs to do to focus on their fraud preventative and fraud detection controls that they have in place now that we're working from home. You know, one thing in terms of working from home is you don't actually know the person or potential client that's on the other side. You know, it's very easy for somebody to say that they're David Malamud and start talking as if they were me and you would believe that you were uh, interacting with David Malamud. You know, after some time, I would gain your trust and potentially I could get you to transfer funds, pay invoices, and do a whole bunch of things. When really, with some simple controls, you would have been able to check if David Malamud is who David Malamud says he is. So, the example of seeing who I am, one of the first places that I go to is LinkedIn. And usually, most people that I'm linked in with are in some way connected to the people I don't know. And what that allows me to do is it allows me to stop with a new individual, go to somebody who's in my contacts and say, do you know this person? Yes, I do. Can I show you a picture of them? Is this them? Yes, it is. 
And then I'd be able to confirm that I've been having a conversation with David Malamud. And I want our listeners to know that we have, in fact, followed exactly that procedure. As we're talking, you and I have never met before, so we're meeting for the first time visually, but we know people in common. We've worked together remotely, so I know I'm really talking to you. That's great. The same goes for me. You know, we have somebody in between us that knows what I look like, knows what you look like, and has put the bridge between us and made it a safe bridge for us to work together. Let's poke a little bit at some of the implications for that. One of the things you mentioned was things like somebody could create a false persona mm -hmm. and then suddenly invoices are getting approved, etc. You have to pivot very suddenly to working from home. You know, when I'm at the office, invoices come to me, I approve them, they go to our accounting department. What do we need to do to prevent any kind of financial fraud in this remote world compared to our physical world and the physical kinds of preventive measures we're used to? Sure. If I can just go back 15 years ago, 15 years ago uh, for CTV News, I did an experiment that showed them that I went on Facebook with somebody else's face. I invited about 25 people to be my friends. Within about 15 to 20 minutes, I had 10 friends where I could tell their mother's maiden names, their birthdays, their dog's names. And today, things really haven't changed that much. Today, if you are in the business world, you are on LinkedIn. There is no question about it. You have some presence on LinkedIn, and if you don't, you need to. And what I find interesting is that I have the ability to reach out to individuals who may not know me, introduce myself. And as you said, I could have a fake persona that I've put on LinkedIn, and I'm starting to build those relationships and networks that don't really exist. It becomes even more scary when they create names of people that you do know. I had a recent experience on a new board that I became part of when I received an email message from the board chair indicating a certain problem and indicating that the treasurer wasn't available and I was brand new to this board and of course you want to be as helpful as possible. I did eventually clue in that this was fraudulent but it was very disturbing. You realize how easy it is for people to get your email address, pretend to be someone else pretend to be somebody you know. When you talk about on LinkedIn, somebody that you do know, where you're familiar with their face, where it used to be that potentially we'd have a meeting face to face, and now we're connecting by text and you see my picture and we connect by email, it gives me the advantage if I'm the fraudster to dupe you. You know, if you are the accounts payable clerk or you're, you're, you're the head of accounts payable and I know that your CEO or CFO usually is the one who authorizes and I create that person and I send you a communication through LinkedIn, potentially you'll get duped and transfer money. You know, one of the controls that you speak about is although we are working with new mediums as a business, we've got to really go back to what we were using originally you know, telephone, visual, and we can't just have new ways in terms of no verbal connection. How were you able to identify? It just started to feel really uneasy. So I contacted the CEO of the organization to say, would I really get a request like this from the board chair? Very smart. So something that the, your listeners must keep in mind is the knee-jerk reaction of wanting to help is normal. We like to help people. That is what we like to do. And when we're at work, we want to help and we want to do a good job. And a lot of the time, doing a good job is a knee-jerk reaction 
to request email or text that you get. And one of the things that we've got to realize is that if we're working from home, we've got to put in a control in place that stops that knee-jerk reaction, where it may have been that you had an internal text program that you were using while at work, and now suddenly you're texting back and forth on LinkedIn. You know, and that brings up really in terms of LinkedIn and conversations and calls, one of the things we're forgetting is that a lot of us live with our families, but a lot of us also live with roommates and people we don't know or people we're friends with. And a lot of the information that we talk about is confidential. My question is, you know, are you doing the bare necessities in terms of closing yourself in a room, making sure that somebody can't hear you, making sure that the information that you are providing over the phone is not being listened to, recorded, etc., because you could find yourself in problems that you wouldn't have before. Are there some specific things that employers should be thinking about to make sure they provide to their employees with that security lens in place, both technology and kind of like healthy habits to encourage? 100%. I believe that all employers should be sending out a town hall notice or doing it by Zoom, letting their employees know what it is that they should and should not be doing. You know, we spoke about the physical surroundings. So you'd want to be in a room with a closed door where nobody could hear you. You'd want to talk only on whatever secure line that you use, whether that be Skype, Zoom, whatever encrypted system you've been using before. You want your employees to know that you want them to use company hardware being your laptop from work and not necessarily your iPad or your PC. You know, there used to be people who would forward their private work to their Gmail or Hotmail or some kind of free mail account so they could work from home or work on a different laptop. And that needs to be a no-no. In terms of, of checking in, one of the things that we want to do is we want to see our employees check in in the morning. We want to make sure that they are online, that there is nothing wrong with them. And the list goes on, Doretta. That's an interesting point. And as people are working from home, for example, I have this issue of not being able to make my work laptop talk to my printer. It's a big issue. So what can employers do and what can staff do, employees do to keep information safe? So one thing that I'm always hesitant about in terms of advice is telling companies and business owners how to spend more money. And the example you gave of your computer not syncing up with your printer is a real problem. You know, the, the simple answer is I would email my employer and I would explain to them that my printer does not work. And if they want me to print, because now they're asking me to have an office at home, will they let me expense a printer? And a printer is pretty inexpensive if you need one. And, you know, getting that authorization from the employer is letting the employer know two things. Number one, you let them know that in order for you to print right now, you have to go outside of the controls that they've put in place. But you have found a way to stay within their controls, except it's going to cost a bit of money. I think that it's interesting that we've heard a lot in this movement to working from home about creating boundaries between our personal life and our working life. For a lot of us, it means we're just working all the time. But 
I think what you're suggesting is that we also need to take a security lens and think about, from a security perspective, the boundary between our personal lives and our professional lives. A hundred percent. And you know, when you bring personal and work life into one, we'll say one laptop, if you're using your employer's laptop, chances are your employer has let you know that as an employee using their hardware, they have the right to monitor, to read, to review anything that it is that you're doing on your laptop. And one thing that is very hard to do, and you have to be quite disciplined about it, is to have your home laptop on one side and your work laptop on the other side. And really never should the two meet. Meaning that if you want to send some personal emails to your friends, to your family, text with them, do it on your own computer, do it on your own iPad. When it comes to work, stay within your work boundaries and don't forward one attachment to the other. And the same way you shouldn't be forwarding attachments from your personal computers or your personal technology to work. What you may be doing, you may be infecting an entire network with a virus. So there's, there's really both ways things going back and forth. Let's talk in a little bit more depth about protecting against fraud specifically. I mean, one thing is basic precautions to security, but fraud as I think of it anyway, is a deliberate thing. It's somebody deliberately trying That's to break right. a security code. So how should security change around critical information when we're working from home? So in terms of critical information, there needs to be an IT policy that is shared with the employees on the do's and don'ts. We spoke about a few of them. When we talk about fraud, now you can get more creative because you've distanced yourself from other employees, other divisions, and other protocol is required. For example, if an invoice was received and sent to accounts payable, and it used to be that your CFO was the one who initialed each payment, and they initialed it based on all the supporting documentation, there has to be a way to check that it is your CEO or CFO or controller who is actually verifying these invoices before they're paid. And I'm not talking about invoices, Doretta, that are you know $100. There has to be a minimum that you start wanting to bother the higher ups. That being said, one way that fraud is committed is a lot of employees know the thresholds uh, in terms of their spending before lights go on and off and alarms start ringing and they would break up an invoice. So one thing that needs to be looked at by a company is are my invoices that I'm receiving from my vendor sequential? And if they're sequential and I add them up, is that above the threshold that we expected? That's interesting. You know, one of the things that we did at, at CPA Canada when we had to pivot very, very quickly to everybody working from home until an electronic control system to address it came in, when invoices came in that I would normally sign by hand, et cetera, we had, would get a, actually get a phone call from finance to double check that that was a real invoice, et cetera. Right. And so what we're talking about really is two-way verification. Banks use it. Google uses it. I don't know if you've ever lost your Google password, but if you lose your Google password, you let them know, they send you a code to your phone number, and they're doing a double-sided verification. So that is something that really we're looking for employers to start to consider. It's an extra step that's required, but again, we're living in a different world. 
we talked a little bit about the challenges of newness of, you know, we don't meet people in person. We're missing a lot of the body language cues, et cetera, that we use to judge people on, particularly in new situations. Can you give us a few hints on steps we can take when we're, you know, maybe recruiting new staff, meeting with new people, et cetera, to give us assurance about the people that we're meeting? Sure. One of the first things that we need to focus on is the due diligence or the background checks on that individual. And, you know, various sources, uh, various databases will be accessed and you'll get a, a synopsis on the background of that person. Hopefully you'll get their picture. And in terms of reading body language, you know, one of the things, one of the parts of my job is interviewing witnesses, interviewing potentially bad guys, and when I do do an interview, I usually have a second person in the room. The second person in the room is taking notes, even though I'm usually recording, audio recording the interview, but the person who's taking notes is not just there to take notes, they're also there to read body language. And body language, an interview through Zoom, you do lose what's going on. You know, when, when I ask a question that upsets somebody, Usually I can see their face going red and potentially their arms crossed and they push back from their chair because they don't want to talk. And at times I'll see them kind of shrug and their arms are open and they've kind of felt like they've given up. Or I ask a question and I notice suddenly a leg that wasn't shaking at the start is now shaking. The difference today is that those aren't cues that, we can, that we're going to be able to see. We're not going to be able to see that shaking leg because most of us are working formal on top and casual on bottom. It would be awkward to ask any employee to take a step back uh, to see their surroundings, but there just needs to be different ways in terms of finding out who they are. You know, bringing on and onboarding a new person, the risk in terms of that person not being who they say they are or not having the experience or education or background, those things today, whether it is remote or whether it is in person, should be able to be taken care of. The validation of, is this the right person? That becomes a bit more challenging because we said that people can do quite a few things in terms of being creative uh, on LinkedIn, the social network for companies and businesses to create a fake profile. And to adopt somebody else's profile is also a risk, meaning that I become Doretta Thompson and I know everything about you. So I put my picture up as though I'm you. I take all your credentials. Anybody who does a background check on you, it's lovely. I'm a fraudster. So now I'm working as Doretta. And the payment really, you know, being transferred to my bank account, there's not much information that you need to have a electronic transfer to your bank account. What happens if you're working from home and you think you've been the victim of a fraud or you think your employer has? What should you do? The first thing that I'm a big supporter of is a whistleblower program. More than 50% of companies today have a whistleblower program in place. One of the statistics that I always like to bring up is the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. It talks about an audit and how much does an audit identify fraud. Fraud is identified during an audit 3% of the time. And that really surprises users of the financial statements. It surprises the company. And you know, Doretta, the number one way that fraud is identified is for whistleblower program and tips to empower your employees to make sure you have a whistleblower program and a whistleblower policy, you want those things. Those are low cost controls and deterrence in terms of fraud. And 
without a whistleblower program, you are risking at least 50% of not finding out about a fraud. And the average fraud takes about 18 months to identify. Think how exposed your company could be for 18 months. If money is leaving the company and only in 18 months you find out, that's quite alarming. With a control like a whistleblower program, you've actually cut that time of identifying a fraud in half. The problem with the whistleblower program, which allows an employee to report something that may seem offside, whether it be fraud or HR related, is that employees don't necessarily know how to access that. And it's even harder to access now that they're at home. You know, when I was doing in-person presentations and lectures, and I'd ask in the room, how many of you have a whistleblower program? Half the hands in the room usually went up. And when I asked how many of you can know how to access it, half the hands went down. So it was only about 25% of the room that felt they knew how to make a submission if need be. Something that has changed is you may have had that comfort, that ability to knock on HR's door and take a step in and let them know your concerns. And you may not feel comfortable doing that anymore. So number one, companies need to have whistleblower programs in place to allow them to empower their employees to report issues. You know, if you think that something is offside, and even before we get there, one thing that we need to do is fraud awareness training. We need to talk to our employees about what fraud looks like. What fraud looks like, not just in our old landscape, but now the new world as we're calling it. You know, when I see pictures of downtown Toronto, I still see quite an empty town, meaning that many people are working from home. And that changes things. And how can employers help employees prepare for cybersecurity breaches that may happen in the future? So one of the ways is to test employees, to send out a rogue email and to see what it is that they do and how they react. And that can be before training or part of training, letting everybody know that an email was sent. It looked like it came from the CEO, but it didn't. And if you had taken a second to put your cursor over their email address, you'd see that the email address was wrong. And that kind of is a starting point to allow your employees to say, wait a second, I see now, I understand. I need to check that email address. I need to check and verify a few more things than I may have previously. So David, you've been working with fraud your whole career. Has this pandemic changed the way you view fraud? Has it taught you stuff or made you look at it in a little bit of a different way? Number one, the big difference for me, and I think that I knew it before the pandemic, just the pandemic has really solidified it for me, is that I don't need to be in the office. My clients really don't need to see me. You know, I'm, I'm saying how clients need to verify who you are, but once they know who you are, really it cuts down and it's more efficient. So it's more cost effective for my clients. This is what we need done. This is what we need you to look at. Here's the material. I get email documents and things to review and financial statements. It does leave me a bit of curiosity around the integrity of the documents that I'm receiving. The integrity of the documents, I've got to believe that the company who's giving me that information, that what they're giving me is correct. And in, in, you know, in an engagement letter, which is what we do before we start with any new client, we actually say that their responsibility is giving us information that's true. How do you know it's complete? So that's more of a challenging question in terms of completeness. Based on what it is that I ask for, 
again, all I can say is I've asked the employer or I've asked the company for all of this information. What they've given me, I believe, is complete. I need to say that in my report that I believe they've given me everything I've asked for and it's complete. But, you know, there may be holes in some of the information and that holes could be the result of intent or just error or oversight. You know, when checks used to come back canceled from the bank and there was a reconciliation of your canceled checks, one of the easy ways to identify where the fraud was occurring was to find the check numbers that were missing. Because fraudsters used to believe that if they took the checks out, that they wouldn't be caught. You know, today things have changed where everything is computerized and your canceled checks are coming to you uh, directly from the bank uh, visually. Another thing that you need to consider is who has access? Who has access to taking money out of the company? Who has access to the bank accounts? Is it just that they have view only access? Do they have the ability to transfer funds? Are they limited by how many funds they can transfer and how many number of transfers can occur? You know, these are the types of questions that you need to start looking at. But there's something that we're forgetting. And we're forgetting about the fraudsters that are malicious and creative. I realized this when we used to have our dial-ins and we would have our access numbers to enter into meetings. And what I realized was many people do not change their meeting room ID. Meaning that if a fraudster so chooses, they can log in anytime to your phone call and listen into it. They can listen to company secrets. They can do some social engineering. It's not that you would necessarily even know that they were on the line. And today, that's just an extension of where we are. We've got to be very careful in terms of, you know, right now, you and I are doing a Skype call. We've got one other individual on the call. When I look at the screen, I see three boxes. And I know that there are three people on the call. I know that I've seen the picture of each person and I know each person. One thing that we don't look at necessarily is what happens if there's a fourth box and we don't know why the fourth box is there and the fourth box can't tell us who they are. You know, what I'm learning as I'm living in the world that we are now and I do Zoom calls or Skype calls or any kind of conference calls, many people prefer not to have their cameras on. They feel that it's harder to speak looking at the person on a computer. They feel they can be more open and more direct, protected, I guess, by the phone without the visual, and they're turning off their cameras. I am against turning off cameras. I much prefer to see somebody that I'm talking to. I know it can be awkward. You know, you don't know where to look at your computer. You don't know if you've got a double chin or you don't know what's happening. Someone's looking up your nose. But what it does do is it gives me more comfort that I'm speaking to the right person and that if they have any social cues to give me about something that they're saying is wrong, hopefully I'm able to pick it up. If they don't want to communicate with me with their screen on and I used to meet them in person, I'm now concerned, why have things changed? You know, and somebody may say simply, I, I'm not comfortable with you seeing my house in the background. I don't want you to see the mess that I have of Lego and all the kids stuff. But at the same time, you know, you as an employee, if it's part of the policy from working from home, you have the ability to say, look, the company has a policy that they want us to have meetings on screen. And I think maybe some of the 
other challenges that we can get into. It's one thing, for example, you were talking about a Zoom meeting where you have three or four people on and suddenly another box appears. But, you know, what if you're in a meeting with 10 people or 12 people and you can't see that many boxes at the same time? Or, you know, town halls where people could get in and how would people find that? When you talk about having too many people, so a town hall, there has to be a unique password. There could be two-way verification. There could be in the meeting room, in the waiting room, that somebody asks you specific questions for you to answer. You know, it will slow things down, but what it will do is make it secure in terms of a town hall. And, you know, most town halls are not necessarily sharing confidential information that can't be shared or sensitive information, but that's not fair to say that necessarily they want everything shared and known. You know, work from home right now if you go on LinkedIn and you were to type in the hashtag work from home, it has hundreds of thousands of followers because everybody wants to know, you know, how is it that we work differently? What is it that we do to work differently? You know, for me, one of the things that's important is a business development. And my business development has changed from going to an office, having a coffee, having a lunch, having a dinner, to having a conversation on LinkedIn, texting back and forth, It may turn into a phone call. It may turn into seeing each other online. But at this point right now, I'm still not meeting with my clients face-to-face. Some people operate better in an office environment where there is people face-to-face. But what we've proven is that we can collaborate uh, online. And collaborating online, as long as we have those controls in place, we can prevent or reduce the amount of times that fraud's going to occur. You know, one of the questions that you asked that I just want to go back to is what happens if an employee identifies fraud? And I said, you know, all employers should have whistleblower programs. The first thing that I want is I would want my employees to know what fraud looks like. And fraud may look a lot different to an employee working from home because they may not get to see everything that they would had they all been working in an office. So there is different controls that need to be in place. You know, we spoke about employee monitoring to help protect the company as a whole. We're not trying to invade people's personal lives. We are simply trying to protect our company, our people, our employees, our intellectual property, our lists, uh, our products, and and so on. Uh, When fraud does occur, then now that is a complete different situation. Now that people work from home and that fraud has occurred or fraud has allegedly occurred, it's always allegedly occurred until the judge says that it's fraud or not, but it's the investigation that changes. Asking for materials to be sent to you, you do have to believe that they're true copies and that they haven't been uh, altered. Interviews now have to be online, hopefully you know through a visual online, but it may be a telephone interview. And people feel that, especially when I interview them, if there's a computer between us, or even better, if there's a telephone between us, they feel more empowered to potentially curve the truth or distort the truth, because there's something in between us now. There's distance. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. What do you hope that the future is going to look like when we pull out of COVID, which we will, this pandemic will end? How do you think things will change? I think that we're going to have a hybrid of what we used to have. 
And that hybrid really is going to be some from home and some from the office. And new controls will have to be put in place to be able to accommodate both and to make it functional. If HR chooses to work from home, you know, maybe I feel comfortable having a conversation with them in person, but I'm not that comfortable necessarily having a conversation with them uh, online face-to-face where my call could be recorded and shared. What do we do to change that? You know, and I'll go back to the whistleblower program as an example. We set up a whistleblower program. So if the employee is uncomfortable talking face-to-face on a computer because they're worried they're being recorded, now they have a third party who deals with it for them and they can do they can make their reports anonymously. One of the things that's changing is that my clients and my employees are in a greater area of the world than they used to be. Meaning that I can have a team where one person's working in Australia, one person is working in South Africa, my client could be in the UK, and I have the ability to do my work, which to me is extremely exciting because now the world's opened up. And for some companies, there is limitations in terms of geographic limitations. And I think the geographic limitations are going to be very difficult to maintain, especially now that we're going virtual. I can be working from anywhere. It's so true. I'm used to working from all over the country. I'm normally back and forth constantly. It's very strange to be working remotely. It's not foreign to me to be working remotely because travel means you learn to work from wherever you are. But I'm very curious as to how quickly people are going to want to return to what we used to consider normal. To what extent people will miss the social connections? That's one of the things I really worry about. And yet there's the whole freedom aspect of it, as you say, that you can work from anywhere. You know, when the pandemic is over, as an employer, I can save on office space. So that excites me. You know, downtown office space is expensive and there's going to be a lot of vacant office space because employers already know that some of their employees aren't coming back, even when the pandemic is over. One of the things that has to happen today, if I was speaking to companies, is they need to look at their fraud policies, they need to look at their fraud controls, and they need to make sure that they've adapted them to this current environment. When the hybrid begins after the pandemic at the end, again, it needs to be reassessed. People need to be retrained what fraud looks like, what to do in the event of fraud. And if companies do not do that, if they haven't done it right now while we're in the pandemic, they've exposed themselves. If and when the hybrid begins, if they don't adjust their policies and their controls, they're at a greater risk. So, David, tell me, what are you doing right now during the pandemic to prevent fraud? That's a good question, Doretta. Uh, So, number one, I have a website, uncoverfraud.com. At uncoverfraud.com, there are videos, there are articles and resources in terms of fraud awareness, fraud prevention, and the ability to train your staff what to look for. You know, I also have a YouTube channel, YouTube Uncover Fraud, where I suggest to everybody, watch those videos. Number one, they're topical, they're current events that I report on, but I also report on, you know, the frauds of the month as well as forensic files. And forensic files, what that is, is that I give examples of files that I've worked on. I tell the situation, I tell the the issue, how it could be fixed and how it could be prevented. And 
really education and fraud awareness training is the number one way to prevent fraud because now suddenly it's not just your internal control department it's not your internal audit department but it's your company as a whole that knows what to look for and knows what to do thanks so much david for the insight tips and information that you've provided to our listeners, you can click to David's resources, including his book, Uncovering Fraud, True Stories About Fraud, Fraudsters, and How They Got Caught. And also to David's website, uncoverfraud.com. You'll find the links in this episode in the description for the podcast in your podcast app. Please note, this is a recorded podcast. The information presented as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic is current as of the date of recording. New and changing government restrictions and assistance programs may have come into effect since the recording date. Please seek additional professional advice or information before acting on any podcast information which pertains to COVID-19. This has been another episode of Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, brought to you by Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. Please rate and review us. And if you'd like to get in touch, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. In these uncertain times, be well, be kind, be safe. We're on this road together. Mm-hmm.